Stevie Farrell has signed the likes of Roy Keane, Terry Butcher, Paul Ince and Stuart Pearce. Not as boss of Stranra, but in his high-powered day job working for a trade union. It's fair to say, this summer, life in charge of the Blues hasn't been quite as much fun. Stevie was one of the three managers who saw his side relegated without completing the season. Stranraer were bottom of League One when we went into lockdown, and after legal wrangles and arbitration, they'll come out of it in League Two. We'll hear his views on that, and how a cup draw last season might have helped the club survive the pandemic. A job in the dugout was something Stevie always craved, even as a player at Stoke City and St Mirren. Back then, he played under the likes of England World Cup winner Alan Ball and Jimmy Bone. But we'll find out just who was the best manager he worked with. Plus, we'll ask why Mark Doherty has the worst summer sandals. And we'll also quiz Stevie about the latest goings-on in Albert Square. It's all here on Down the Divisions. Thanks for joining us for another 60 minutes or so looking at the lower leagues. Paul, uh, we've talked about some of your signings at New Mains and the fact you're back at training, but uh, I hear there's been another new appointment. Yes, we've got a new kit man at the club. Most important job at uh, any team. So we've appointed last year's goalkeeper coach, uh, Mark Bissett. Mark was struggling to come out, but he uh, obviously said he'd like to come back in some capacity. So this week he's come up with some crazy ideas how to make things some... Uh, more professional so no he's a great lad he's one of the characters around the club as well and I think in that type of role you need that so we're really excited and some of the ideas he wants to put forward are really good can you give us a flavour yeah he says uh, right we need to make it professional Paul so on a Friday night he says I'll listen to this podcast he says and I'll go around all the players houses and collect their boots so they're in the changing room for the next day I says no you won't that's one of the ideas he come up with. He says, well, I'll go around the players' houses on a Friday night to collect their boots. I thought, that's keen. Especially, so he's a listener of the, of the podcast then, is he? Keen listener, that's what he likes to do. He likes to go drive in the car and listen to the podcast. Sounds like a good man. Uh, if you've got any comments, including you, uh, Biss, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at downthedivisions at gmail.com. That's downthedivisions at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Facebook or Instagram. Hi, it's Murdo McKinnon, Port Manager here, and you're listening to Down the Divisions. Stranra Manager Stevie Fowl is our guest this week. Thanks for joining us, Stevie. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. We'll, uh, we'll chat some more in a moment, but before we do, we've got the Down the Divisions decider. As ever, one of us gives four clues for a particular year. Incredibly, it's still two apiece, and this week I've got the clues. Uh, we're bringing you in on this uh, as well, Stevie. Uh, so this week we're looking for the year when Renfrew won their one and only Scottish Junior Cup. Sven Jorn Eriksson took over as England manager. Foot and mouth disease started in the UK. And Manchester United paid a British record transfer fee of nineteen million pounds to sign Rude Van Nistelrooy. Right, okay. What's your thoughts, Stevie? I, I'm having an early guess, maybe about two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. The fact that Paul has been known to go and watch Manchester United once in a while, I, I imagine he should get this. I tell you one thing: when you said foot and mouth, and you said Sven Gordon Eriksson, I was thinking, I was thinking late nineties, but when you said Rude Van Nistelrooy, but I can see the strap they played in as well. The Vodafone strap. 2002. 
2004. 2004. Final answer? I know I've got it wrong because you're grinning for year to year. 2004. We'll find out at the end of the show. My name is Brown Ferguson, manager of Unlithgow Rose, and you are listening to Down the Divisions. Stranraer manager Stevie Fowle is with us this week. Stevie, we're probably best starting with the here and now. Does the whole relegation saga still feel raw even now? I think you probably take time to reflect, Gareth, and, and I think you move on very quickly in football, thankfully. Uh, I think most managers and, and players will tell you that and people that's involved in the game. And and I would I would safely say now that probably some weeks and months after it, it's 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 a thing that, that still wrangles, obviously, ourselves, Party Thistle and Hearts, and obviously Party Thistle and Hearts took the legal challenge. We weren't in a position, financial position to do that. But I think you've got to move on. I think you've got to draw a line. And I think you've got to move on and accept where you are moving into to a new season and look forward. And, and that's what that's what we're doing now. We're looking forward, looking at anticipation, like everybody else, looking for the, the lower league seasons, the Championship, League 1 and League 2 to get started and, and preparing accordingly for that. So although it still sits there, and, and but you've got to try and gain some motivation for that. You've got to try and use that as a as a platform this year uh, and the season ahead to try and uh, to try and motivate the players to to come back from that. Did it have any financial impact on you, Stevie? In terms of did you have to initially get lawyers and stuff like that involved, or did Stranraer just take a stance that you know, something we can't can't afford to do and uh, leave the other two do that? I think part of the. I mean, my day job is obviously involved in employment law, so the, the club was was engaging with myself quite regular on it. Uh, we didn't we didn't invoke the the, the the help of any outside external lawyers because financially we didn't have to. Uh, we always we always believed that it was unjust, unfair, in other words, it's been used. Uh, sporting integrity. I mean, I've seen sporting integrity used in so many contexts over the last few months, and, and probably know very few in the right context. But reality is, we we always believed it was wrong, uh, but we we were never in a financial position to challenge that. You know, we just we just won in that position. Start a club like Stranraer and, and you know lower league clubs in general are just not in that position to challenge it. So it is it is what it is, and, and now we need to make the decision to move on. We're now a League Two club. We've got to accept that and uh, and look forward to the season ahead. As I said, I spoke to you a couple of times quite early on after decisions had been made that affected Stranraer and it was obviously a lot of uh, unhappiness, you know, justifiably in, in what had happened. And this, the structure, I know you kind of looked at the structure and, 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 and not just you, I mean, it's been talked about by so many people through lockdown. Do you believe that there's, there's something there that needs to change um, and that maybe was, was lacking which might have led to a different outcome at the time? I think regardless of where you sit on it, Gareth, uh, and I think you and I had this discussion, uh, regardless of what your, your your belief was or your opinion was, I think the learning outcomes for this full process, I think Scottish football in general need to take cognizance of that. And I think we need to look forward and ensure that, because let's not be kidded, forget the teams that were involved. We became a laughingstock. We became a, every radio station, every journalist, every out, media outlet was talking about Scottish football and and how bad it had and how we can't find us in that position again. Now it's not for me to tell 
the SPFL board and you know the SFA how to run their business. But they've certainly got to look themselves in the mirror and look at the learning outcomes for this and hopefully move forward. And if we ever find ourselves regrettably in a position like this again, that we don't make the mistakes that's led to the complete uh, traumas in the last four or five months, which is doing golf Scottish football. I mean, because all we've had is is a continuation of people arguing, people falling out, disagreements, and that's all. That all stems from decisions that's made from the very top. Let's put it where it's at. Do you know that that's that's the fallout of decisions that were made to the very top. So, do you know, all you ask of these people at the top is they say take some accountability, some responsibility, and ensure that we're never in this position again. There were clubs who who were talking about having to end the season early so they could get their bonus payments to survive. Um, I know your your chairman went on the radio several times talking about the financial impacts and these kind of things, but that that Scottish Cup draw against Rangers, if you hadn't have had that game, would we be talking about Stranraer being in dire straits right now? I think we would have certainly been talking about Stranraer being in a completely different polar opposite financial position to what we are. I mean, we that that cup game came at just the right time. I think it came about six weeks before the the, the pandemic struck. So the the income at that time and and you know a handsome income certainly helped the football club get through that difficult period. I, I think as well, I can't speak for any other club. I can only speak for my own club. But the way the football club dealt with the existing player group at that time was exceptional. So we ensured that the moment there was an opportunity to follow the players. And I mean, include all players in that. So all players on the books, we did that. We continued to do that for as long as we, we were able to do so. And the government guide, uh, guidance allowed us to do so. And we continue to follow players that are remaining with the club even to this day. So in terms of the football club, they couldn't have done enough for the existing group of players and for the players moving forward into a new season. So I think, you know, clubs have, uh, clubs have made their own decisions, but as I can only speak on behalf of Stranar, and, and we've tried to do the right thing by the players. Because if I've, I've always said, and I said, these players are secondary footballers. So these players are workers. These players you know, work in the, the all through course, across all sectors in, in terms of the working environment. And, and a lot of these players were, were hit in their own workplaces. You know, and were on their own financial difficulties and hardships. So it was important that football clubs, and again, particularly their own football club, made sure that the players that were under a remit were looked after the best they possibly could by the government guidelines and the support scheme that the government put in place to allow us to do so. Do so. Certainly that money for the Rangers game undoubtedly allowed us to, to take a more balanced approach in terms of our financial position to get through this. Obviously we'll touch on your day job later, Stevie, but was that something that you kind of pushed for uh, with the board, or was that just a decision the board made straight away? One thing I've always said about is we we don't have a great deal, but we're good. There's good people at that football club. Do you know, there's good people. There's there's good people with good morals, and 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 I didn't have to do a lot of convincing. I've got to say, I mean, I engage regularly with the chairman. We have a great relationship. But that then, that engagement between me and the chairman quickly, you know, uh, escalates through the, the rest of the committee. And we didn't have to really do a lot of convincing, if I'm being honest. They were all on board for day one that they wanted to look after the players. And as I say, it's a credit to them that they did that. And and I'm not saying this is through no I'm saying this as a, as a football person. You know, they did the right thing by football players at a difficult, a difficult time and an unprecedented time. And they've only to be applauded for that. How has it affected what you can do now 
transfer-wise? I mean, how is your squad now? Have you been able to make moves, you know, many moves? And and are you starting with one arm tight behind your back a little bit? I would say this is probably the first season since I came to the club, Gareth, that, that that's not the case. Uh, and I'll probably give a, a better understanding as to why. When I first came back to the club, we had a good squad. Uh, you know, we found ourselves bottom in the league, but and I came, came back for Dumbarton. And I didn't have to do a great deal to, to probably keep the club up because they're good players, experienced players. You know, Wally Gibson's a spoke to Stephen Bells. You know, players that were established Championship League One players. So we just had to get them organised again and get them believing again and get them playing my smell more face. And we did that. And then the following season, I continued doing that group. And we were sitting third in the league. You know, we were just we just beat Forfa 3-1 or at Christmas and we were sitting third in the league. And we were, uh, I was actually going up the stairs to meet with the committee on the hope that I could bring, and Paul will understand, the hope I could bring in one or two for the January window that would kick his own to, to make that difference to get us to the championship. And then we were hit with the news that the club were in the financial position they were in. So from that moment, it has been hands tied behind the back, probably to the extent that no, no many people have a clear understanding. For the last three years, pound for pound, Strunas shouldn't have been anywhere near one. You know, we shouldn't have been anywhere near League One, but we managed to survive and continue to survive in League One. This year, perversely, we now find we're selling a league where will we have the highest budget? No, we won't. Will we have the second highest budget? No, we won't. But are we able to go and compete in terms of League One and can we compete at the top end of the, the League Two table? Sorry, absolutely, I believe we can. And this is probably the first year in terms of competitiveness, run about the budget and the squad that have believed that we can be at the right end of the table rather than you know, battling away at the bottom end of the table. So perversely, you know, this is this has led to to be in League Two, this this decision. Uh, and in some ways I hope, you know, this is this is a catalyst for us to go and have a good competitive season at the top end of the table. So flying high in December, you get hit with that news. Is that a case of giant transfer window then you're having to offload wages? Are you having to get rid of boys or is it just a case of you just couldn't strengthen anymore? I couldn't do anything, Paul. I, 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 Stephen Bell left the club, my captain, you know, and obviously went to United. Cameron Bell from the goalkeeper left the club and went to England for a full-time green, uh, deal with Forest Green. Liam Dick left the club and went to Alloa, you know, and, and, and is still playing in the championship to this day. Uh, so that was the calibre of player that I lost then. I lost I lost six first-team players. Uh, Ryan Wallace was sold to a growth. Uh, at that time to recoup money as well. He was my top goal scorer at the time. So we replaced that in January with loan signings. And and I've got to say, I, I was thankful, I've been on record before, I've been thankful to, to the likes of to Derry McInnes and Craig Levine and others, you know, that, that helped me at that point and, and understand the predicament we're in and give us young players uh, to come in and, and see us through to the end of that season. And the young players, you know, really came in your Angus Beats to this world and, and they did really, really well. Uh, they reacted to the situation really positively, and we managed to survive that season and, and, and battle to fifth to, to be to finish fifth in the league. But you know, there probably was a fallout thereafter because that season trying to build from the budget of which I first had when I went back to the budget that left us after the financial uh, hit was was night and day. That's an absolute credit as well to the or to yourself first of all and the Stranraer board because. Many a manager in that position, we've seen it a million times before, and I'm not saying this is the managers' union ourselves, but it's like a lot of guys would have lost their job after that and they've seen the free fall. But obviously, the, the board have recognised 
what had happened in the situation losing players and certainly stuck by everything that you've done and believe in you? There have been. I mean, I can't thank the club enough. I mean, when I I remember the words I said to the committee the night that I went up into the boardroom the night after we beat fourth and went third in the league and, and you know, they, they hit me with the news. I said, listen, guys, I am walking away and I, I, I you know, I'll, I'll be loyal to, to you guys. I, I, it's, not my, it's not in my character to do that. Please believe me, you don't have any issue. I will be here. We will get through this. But I expect, and I did be honest with them because I always set expecta- expectations based on reality. I said, we, we are now in for a difficult two or three year. You do need to understand that. And every single one of them understood that to a man. And that's that's not changed. Do you know, we've continued to have those positive in, in, in conversations and never forgot that initial conversation. Never forgot that. So, but as I say this year, I think there's a few good factor run about the club. I think we're probably at a level where we can go and compete uh, without making any promises and any rash statements. But I certainly think we're in a, we're in a strong position to go and have a, a, a decent season ahead of us. Without continually going back to last season and everything that went, because you've clearly got the mindset that, you, you know, we accept where we are and that's what we're doing. Do you think that you guys had enough in the tank to survive or do you think maybe going to League 2 is a leveler for you guys and actually gives you a, a better chance to actually compete and, and, and actually bring a bit of glory to Stranraer? Well, I've said this, I said this previously. You know, football pundits, football fans write their own narratives. They say what suits them and suits their club. Do you know, I don't have yeah. any issue with that. Do you know, people will say, Astronaut last season only won two games. They were never going to win any more games. Well, when you look at the bottom five clubs in the championship that restarted in England uh, with five weeks of the season to go, not one of them finished in the bottom five. So, do you know, that, that tells you how fickle football is from week to week. And, and when you get to the business end of the season, we'd still nine games to go. In the last three seasons since the financial hit at Stranraer, we've been in the bottom two with nine games to go for the last three seasons and survived every season. So we had we had, we had had the knowledge and an understanding of being in that position. We also done know-how in the squad and the likes of Jamie Hamill and other boys with that experience of being there. And and more importantly, we had, we had a, a history of finding a way when we needed it most. Well, that was taken away from us. We weren't given that opportunity. And as I say, people have their own narrative in that because it suits their own football club and their own football beliefs. And I don't have any issue with that because I'm I'm, I'm giving you my narrative based on my, uh, uh, you know, Stranar FC. But the reality is we had some some figures and facts that I've just produced there that don't lie. Throwing, in the last three seasons, we were in that position and managed to get out to it every single time. So with nine games to go and we're a game in hand and coming to bringing it down to four and five points, I absolutely believe that we could get out of that position, as did the players. But as I say, it's no history. Looking to the future then, I mean, how, how, how are you set with your squad? And, and can you maybe tell us, there seemed to be a bit of uh, confusion, I guess, about Ryan Stevenson as well. Is, is, is he going to true? Is he coming back this general? I don't think Ryan knows what he's doing. It's Ryan we're talking about. It's, uh, <laughs> listen, the first thing I'll say about Steve was, I love the lad. I love the lad. I worked with him at Dumbarton. You know, I worked with him at Stranraer. Uh, and he, I wish him all the best in the future, whatever he decides to do. The issue with Steve was, he just he found out not that long ago that he's, his partner's pregnant. Uh, and 
they're going to have a baby, which you know I, I, I wish them every success with that, and, and you know in, in the future. But the reality is that prohibited them from from the travelling that League Two in particular, you know, was was going to was going to throw up in terms of your Elgins and your Breakins and so forth. So it became yeah. a conversation that was private between me and Ryan that I probably knew four or five weeks ago that I was probably pushing against a, a door that wasn't quite ajar or open. So that's hence the reason I went and signed Daryl Duffy. You know, I, I knew that I needed to get that type of striker with that experience and know-how along with the other younger players that are brought in in that, that offensive area to, to go and have that that something different with that knowledge and, and, and know-how. And Daryl brings that. So I'm losing Ryan Stevenson. I understand that. It's a big loss, but I've replaced it with, with a really good professional with, with, with similar, similar good attributes that I need up that top end of the pitch. Talk to us about management and coaching then, Stevie. I mean, I guess your, your day job working for the Community Trade Union, um, being the regional secretary for Scotland and Northern Ireland, I guess, you know, management of people, it kind of, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, just, it's the skill set, isn't it? But um, is, is, is it something that has always interested you way back when and, and something that you always wanted to get into? I've always, I think I've said this to you previously in articles that we've done, I, I don't know whether I'll be a good manager, Gareth, but uh, I believe in my, my coaching ability. I, I like to think on the, on the, on the pitches where I, you know, I excel most. Uh, players have said some really nice things over the years at, at, at you know, the levels that I've, I've coached and managed, and that's nice to hear, and that's good feedback. And, you know, People like Ryan Stevenson and, and you know, players that have, have played it in the Premier League have said some nice things. And, and that's good to hear because as a coach, and, and Paul understand this, you, you know, you, particularly a coach like me who likes to go tactically and in depth and, and, and on the training pitch, you know, that, that that's where I, I want to be. That's what I want to be. I want to be out in the, the field and, and trying to develop and improve players. And that that's that's my, that's my, honestly, in terms of trying to become a better coach, I honestly believe I can become a better manager because the management side of things, I genuinely believe comes from just treating people with respect and fairness. If you're respect, if you're respectful to people and you treat them like men and you treat them with fairness, that doesn't matter what environment you're managing people. I think you'll get a reaction, a positive reaction to that. But I genuinely believe that as you go up the levels, you will be judged on your coaching. You will be judged on what players can learn and take from you. You know, I remember me and Stephen went to Dumbarton. And we'd, we'd, you know, we were going into a championship. And that year, we went into a championship. Hibs were there, Dundee United were there, and so forth. And, you know, we were working with players that had probably came to the Premier League, a lot of them with Darren Bars and so forth, and Fraser Wrights. And, and, you know, you will get found out very, very easy for that type of player if you don't go in and, and make your mark in terms of coaching and, and a coaching environment very quickly. So it's always been something that's been at the forefront of my mind, even since my Stoke City days. When I was a, a kid at Stoke City, I used to go in on a Friday night and take the kids because I always had an appetite to go and learn and develop. And the thing that I love most as a player is when a manager or a coach came into a dressing room and said something to me before, half-time or after a game, where I walked away, I drove away in the car and thought, I've never heard that before. That stuck with me. Do you know, I, I, nobody's ever said it to me like that. And those yeah. are the things that, and were the wee nuggets that I always took away from for coaching and managers uh, and, and try to develop into my own style of coaching. And staying on the coaching theme, I'm I'm probably my my own biggest critic. I look at myself, one loser draw, what did I do that day? 
that I could have done better. But I think Stevie and, and, and we've only just kind of met, but I think you're the type of character you come across very articulate. That I, I don't think it would matter what level you were in it. You would still, whether you're managing at junior level or whether you're managing in the SPL, you would still be that character. And, and I think people would, would buy into what you've got. Very kind of confident. See, when you started the management, did, were you nervy at all going into dressing rooms and, and giving team talks? Because I certainly know it can be a daunting thing. I think, again, Paul, that comes from that life experience. I think with what I've done in life, I, do you know, I remember working in the prison service and, and that's where I, do you know, I came from initially and, and when I stopped playing full-time football and into the prison service. I mean, you sit and listen to stories and, and, and people talking about life and the difficult times in life. You actually reflect in your own life and you take confidence for your own life in some ways from others' like others' lives that have been less fortunate. Do you know, and and I think that gives that gave, that's I can only speak for myself. That gave me a confidence because I had to go and try and I had to go and try and with a lot of these these people who were less fortunate in life. I had to go and try and give them a different direction. I had to go and try and give them life skills that they'd never had before. And I think when you do that, I think when you go in in front of a team of a, a group of footballers, you take it for what it is. Do you know, you take it for what it is. A lot of these footballers, whether they're in Cumnock's dressing room, which was my first dressing room or whether it's in Strenar as manager, they're only men, and I look at them as men first and foremost. For me, they're men, and if you can engage with them in men, and you can get that on that level with them as men, and they understand you, whether they're a Premier League footballer, or a Championship footballer, or a West of Scotland League footballer, they're still, if you can engage with that man and get that relationship with them man-to-man, then you're going to get that respect. And it's about honesty and integrity. I think if you're honest with people, Regardless of where you, where you manage or where you coach, if you're honest with them and you give them an honest day, uh, day, uh, uh, days, you know, uh, verse or, or narrative or whatever it may well be, I think you'll get respect back, and that's the way I, that's the way I've always looked at it, Paul. So I've not, I've never been that. I, 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 I'm quite confident going and speaking in, in front of groups because when I moved into the trade union movement, you you then go and speak in front of groups all the time in big groups, and and again you've got to stand there and make people believe in what you're saying. So that that never really fazed me, I've got to say. Uh, I was always intrigued what people thought, because, again, that was about that learning outcome. You know, that was about that learning outcome, and I'm big on that. Well, that's probably got to be my next point, because there's obviously, like, a, you, you grow and you learn with maturity, but was there a kind of light, was there like a light bulb moment for you when, you, when you're sitting going, you know, you're, you're dealing with people and you've got to try and show them new life skills? Is there a light bulb moment to think, do you know what? I, mean, what, I think what I'm trying to say is, how did you find that in yourself to, to be like that? Or is that just something that comes to you naturally? I don't know. I, I think I think I'm very simplistic in my outlook, you know, in life in general. And again, I mean, just that. I can only take myself, but I'm very simplistic. I'm very, I'm very, I'm very black and white. I say this to my little lad. Do you know, he's a, he's a footballer now and trying to make his way in the game, and, and he'll come to me and say, "What do you think, Dad?" And, and people talk about these grey areas. I don't have grey areas in life. There's black and there's white. There's good and there's bad. There's right and there's wrong. They grey areas for me, and, and I can only speak for me as an excuse. Do you know, people will come and make all sorts of excuses in the grey area bits, and football players are no different. Oh, it was this gaffer, it was that gaffer. And then when you take a player away in a one-to-one and you say to them, listen, forget the grey area, but this is, you challenge them to challenge themselves. I don't need to challenge them. 
you challenge, I don't need to tell them what they've done well and what they've not done. I challenge them to challenge herself. And I've always felt that that's the best way to, to manage and coach people. Because if you can get them thinking about their strengths, weaknesses, what they can do better, and more importantly, where they've went wrong, and an ownership to them accepting where they've went wrong, then you have every chance of making them better. I think if you can't get them to accept that they're wrong in the first place, or they've got something no right, then you're going to struggle no matter how good a coach you are. You talk about life and experiences. We've talked about this before for the newspaper, but 17 years ago, you sadly lost your mum. And and, and how much did, did that lead to that kind of black and white aspect, do you think, as well? I mean, when, when you see that happen, when you go through that, I guess it puts everything puts everything into perspective and puts football into perspective. Of course it does, because, again, it comes back to it, Gareth. That's life, do you know, and I'm not the only... I'm not only a lad that's lost his mum at a, a young age, and, and, and she was at a young age as well. And you know, it was difficult for me. It was difficult for my family. Uh, and but I'm not the only one. Uh, there's 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 a multitude of people in in general life, every walk of life, have that happened to them every day in life, unfortunately. But it's how you react to that. Do you know what I mean? That, that black and white about me. I, I mean, I lost my mother at one o'clock in the morning, uh, and I was on a bus to four for the eight o'clock, and went and played. Now, yeah. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that that was me. Do you know? And that's where the black and white in like my life comes. Do you know? It's very, I'm very regimental with that, uh, and it's, there's no that bit in the middle for me. Uh, and and I'm glad because that suits me. That suits me. Uh, and uh, but it's it's you know that was certainly a moment that was challenging. And when you've dealt with a moment like that at some, such a young age, what really comes after that that's that's going to come close to it? Do you know? You try and put things into context. You know, me me losing a game on a Saturday Saturday afternoon and, and you know, we've lost a, a last minute goal, is it ever gonna get as worse as that that experience? Never. Ne- ne- never ever. It's 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 just never ever. It's not gonna even come close. And it's a different context. So it's about putting all that into a context of your life and then moving on, you know, and, and and trying to learn as as I always, you know, I've spoke about since uh since my mum passing away. So Getting onto that bus after that was that also did that also help you deal with it? In a, I mean, was football was football a release and could you almost decompartmentalise it when you went on the pitch that day that it was like looking forwards? Of course it was. Again, this expectation. I mean, listen, I, my my kid has got an expectation of what his dad expects of him. Do you know the standards that his dad expects of him? So my mother. Followed me everywhere through my career, where I was Stoke City, St Marin, you know, when I went into juniors, she was always there. She was always following me, so she was a big supporter. And my mindset that that day was that if she had to choose anywhere I was that next day, it would have been on a football park playing football. And for me, it wasn't a hard decision. It was the right decision for me. Uh, and I just think when you put that into the context of life and managing and coaching, then it puts it in perspective in a lot of ways. Talk about we've mentioned a few times your your trade union job. Tell us a bit about that because the, there's a there's a football aspect attached to that. I mentioned the the guys at the start of the show there, your your inses and your butchers and your pierces who you've kind of worked with. There's, there's a link up with the English League Managers Association there. Yeah, I did that a couple of years ago. It was very good actually. We had a link up with with the LMA 
uh, and I'd went and done a few coaching courses with Stuart Pearce, Terry Butcher, uh, and we, we, we actually run it in prisons for, 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 for inmates. Uh, so we actually went into prison and developed a, a, a coaching course. Uh, and we were into a number of English prisons. It was mostly English prisons. We were into a couple of Scottish prisons as well. So uh, George Burley attended one of them with me as well. So we went in and developed in, in, in a coaching course for, for, the, for the inmates, which, do you know, was like, was like when they seen nothing to do with Stevie Farrell, it was, they weren't even interested in me, but when they seen people like Stuart Pearce coming in and Terry Butcher coming in and George Burley coming in, then you can imagine they were hanging on every word, every story that they had to tell. So we had the coaching day and developed the coaching day at the end with a bit of a Q&A, which again gave these these guys it's less fortunate in life that, that bit of insight into people who they had looked up to and, and seen on the TV countless and, and many times. For me, it was great to develop that coaching aspect with these guys and, and spend some time with them. What, what, what does your day job involve out with that then? The day job's mostly about employment. My, my, the level I'm at is about employment law and employment contracts. You know, it's about you know, ensuring that, that employees are, are, are represented the best we possibly can within the workplace, their contracts, their employment, their terms, conditions are supported, uh, and any variations to that. You know, we need to ensure that employment law is is uh, it looks after that. So it's it's negotiating with a lot of employers, a lot of CEOs and, and managing directors at, at you know at a level that I need to engage with. Uh, so no, it keeps me busy, but it, it's, it's something new I've been doing for for a long time. It's probably a job that I both enjoy and it's became natural to me in, in you know the day to day stuff. So it's uh, no, it's every day is different. And it's good. Obviously, a lot of guys unfortunately lose their job all the time in football. Players get released. How did the young Stevie Farrell uh, fall into the into that kind of line of work? Because I wasn't good enough, Paul, as a as a full time football player. End off. <laughs> you know, I mean, serious. It's just that that's a reality. I was nine years full time at, at Stoke Saints in London and had a decent career, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough to, to hold it up there for for uh, for fifteen twenty years, make a career out of it. Uh, I found a level. <coughs> pardon me. I found a level which I was good at uh, when I dropped back into the the Ayrshire Juniors. And, and played in a in a good team and obviously Cowan and Rangers and, and, and the team that we went on to become. But that that's the simple answer to that. So the reason that I feel if, if I was good enough, I would have stayed full time football. I probably people who played with me would have probably said that I was probably a yard or two short a pace. And I definitely was. I definitely was. To go and play at the intensity and the level of the Premier League Championship, I probably was that yard or two short. But how did you fall into the kind of trade union side of things? How did you did you get a job straight from playing football that, that led you into that? What I'd done at Stoke City is I'd went to night I'd went to a night school at uh, Stoke City because when you're away from home at sixteen, you know, you train during the day and you know you play reserve football and so forth. But there's a lot of boredom there as well. So I went and enrolled in a college course, uh and in and at the local college and I've done a three year course and it was in, in PE and PE studies and I actually do you know, when I came out of football, I went into, I'd become a PE teacher in the, in the prison service and I applied and, and thankfully was successful. So, do you know, I spent three, four years as a PE teacher and was involved in the local trade union movement within the prison service. And somebody came and spoke to me one day for the trade union and asked me, just straight, would you fancy this as a career and, and fancy coming on board? And, and that's as simple as it happened. And I left four years later, I left the prison service to go and join the trade union movement and the rest is history, as they say. You've obviously done very well at that. You've got a good job. 
but as you touched on earlier about coaching, clearly a passion of yours. Would would is full time management, full time coaching? If somebody came to you and said, right, would you like to come on our backroom staff? Would you like to be a manager full time? Would it be something you you would consider, or is there too much to lose in your day job? I would absolutely the answer to that, Gareth. I mean, you and I have spoke previously. I would all I would, absolutely that would be where I would want to. I, I hear a lot of people saying I'd love to go any full time coaching. First of all, you've got to ask the question. That that that's what a lot of people forget. You've got to ask. You've got to ask the question. It's easy to say I would love to. You've got to ask the question. Secondly, do I believe I'll get asked that question? Only time will tell. Only time will tell. Do I believe that Stevie Farrell's a big enough name? To, to attract interest from the Premier League and Championship, probably not, probably not. And that's not me putting myself down. That's again that reality in relation to me. Do I think I can go and coach? I've already coached in the Championship. Can I go and coach in the Premier League? In my opinion, I absolutely can. But you need to get asked that question. You need somebody to ask you that question. And if somebody asked me that question without it being hypothetical and it was real, then I would seriously, seriously consider it because it's somewhere I believe I could go and excel, and it's somewhere I believe that I could go and prosper. Because there have been guys down the years who have been talented coaches, but a bit like yourself, you know, they're employed in a good job and they see they see it as too much of a potential sacrifice if things then don't go well. No, I get that. I get that. And you know, when you when you combine the the, the football salary with your with your own salary, then it, it becomes it becomes a, a, a you know a good a good standard of living. So I, I get that. But you know, would I like to go? I had, I was a full time footballer for for nine years, so I know what it feels like to 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 have that experience as as in the football side of things. So I have an idea what it would like to go and coach and manage it that that you know that full time environment, and I would take it every day of the week. But as I say, it's okay me saying it. You go ask the question. You go ask the question, and and you know that's uh, that's the hardest bit of that. I'm Cammy Bell, Queens Park goalie, and this is Down the Divisions. Sam Wardrop has signed up for a third spell at Dumbarton, while Jamie Morgan has extended his contract at Salt Coast Victoria. Kirk and select Rob Roy have agreed terms with young centre-half Rab Griffiths, who played for East Stirling last season. Meanwhile, Luger Boswell Thistle have brought in Robbie Wilson from Craigmark, and Vale of Clyde signed Connor Blades. And another week means another new arrival at Darville. This time it's forward Scott McLean, who started out at Kilmarnock and was at Annan last season. I'm Chris Ewing, owner of the Caledonian Braves. You're listening to Down the Divisions. Which brings us to Inside the Mind. Each week we'll put our guests on the spot to look deep into their psyche and discover some hidden stories. Right, Stevie? Who was your idol as a boy? Danny McGrain. Yeah. Danny McGrain was was doing what fullbacks allegedly are doing now. He was doing that 25 years ago. Coaches have got a brilliant way of complicating life and football and using phrases and buzzwords. Danny McGrain was doing what Ashley Cole was doing in the 2000s with Chelsea. He was doing that in the, the 70s and 80s with Celtic. He was uh, he was world class. He was world class and his his delivery. His de- and the one thing that he had is offensively he was very very good in terms of his delivery in terms of his distribution. But God, he could defend. He could defend also. He was tough. And, uh, and for me, there's no many fullbacks been as good as him in, in the modern era. Have you ever managed to meet him at all? Listen, this is a, this is a, I was at a 
Paul asked me a question if I was confident to go and speak. He's probably the one per- the, the one person I've been more nervous about meeting in my life. And I <laughs> day one night uh, I was at a function and I was encouraged to go and speak to him. And I've got to be honest, I bottled it. And it wasn't that long ago, actually. I was I was probably quite mature and my life and I, I completely bawled it. I've just I, I don't know what it is about Danny McGrain. I, I think it's because you had that boy boyhood, you know, absolute stardom for me. And uh, and I never took the opportunity, but obviously a fantastic footballer and a, and a hero of mine growing up. Uh, who's who's the toughest opponent you faced? Probably Tommy Burns. When yeah. I played, you know, he was uh, Tommy Burns glided. For those that remember him, he glided. He, he you know, he, gl- he had fantastic balance. That left foot. Always, always think left foot players look look more graceful. Anyway, you know, most people will say that. Uh, and Tommy Burns, I think he gets remembered for a for a true sell. He gets remembered for a for a for a very good uh, manager. But I think he was a very good footballer. You know, very intelligent. He loved that one where he played it as a midfield player, one side, fainted to go the other side, come back on the side he played, and he was brilliant. And it didn't know, didn't matter that he knew he was doing it. You just couldn't get there. You know, you just couldn't get there. And he was there. No, I played against Tommy a couple of times, and I thought he was an exceptional footballer. What's the favourite football top you've worn and why? Me and Eric Phillips, actually, my goalkeeping coach, were discussing this towards the end of the season. Admiral have come, made a kind of... Yep. Back a bit. Um, when I was at Stoke City, we wore the Admiral kit, but it was probably the heaviest kit I've ever worn in my life. I don't know whether you remember it when you were a, when you were a lad, but Admiral were, the, were the, yep. one of the uh, suppliers. Well, the Stoke City Admiral kit back then was... I always loved the Stoke City. It was so striking with the, the red and white. But the Admiral kit was not only red and white, it was the heaviest strip that I've ever worn in my life. I think it put a bit of stone on me. So <laughs> that was a, the, the kit that I uh, enjoyed and, and remember the most. Uh, who's the best player you've played or worked with? Best player I've played was probably Paul Lambert. Paul Lambert was, was probably the best player I played with. Paul Paul changed and, and Paul would be the first to admit this. When when I played with Paul, he was he was that number eight, ten who liked to go and bomb. He was that boss a boss hose pipe, you know, he was undisciplined. He went and tried to get beyond and break the lines. And then he, he, he went to Motherwell and was still a bit like that at Motherwell, I've got to say. Then he went to Germany and you know, a year I've never seen a, a year make such a difference to a footballer. Forget he won the European Cup in terms of tactically I've never seen a year make such a difference to a way a footballer played than Paul Lambert because he came back, that discipline, that six, that defensive midfield player, that holding player, and he went on to be, you know, become a top, top player. So, you know, Paul was probably the best player that I, that I played with. Good answer. Um, and what's the best practical joke you've seen? It's got to involve... It's got to involve Chick Charlie at some point, you know, when I played with Chick, Chick was just mad. Absolutely mad. The MD came across Chick with Terry. But probably one of the funniest is it, is it Cumberland Juniors. I'm not going to name the boy's name. Uh, a young boy came in at Cumberland Juniors when I was manager. And you hear the players telling this story. And as manager, you don't want to throttle them or laugh. But I've got to say, I was in, I was in stitches. So long and short is, they get hold of his mobile number. They start texting him as if they're a female. They wind him up to say and get him to send explicit pictures with only his football boots on. So he does this. So this is two players, Chick Conley, one of them, Gary Wilde, the other one. They then encourage him to go to this girl's house, this woman's house, 
who's married, they're sitting across the road in a motor. <coughs> they then tell them just to come up to the door. <laughs> they then tell him just to open the door. It's open. He's still thinking he's getting invited by this lassie. <coughs> he's in the door, and the next thing is they see the husband chasing him back out the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably one of the biggest wind-ups and the funniest I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so so did, when, when did they actually reveal their cover then, as, as he came, uh, as he was running out the door? I think they did it training the following Tuesday night or something, you know, but you can have, I, I don't know where you know Chick Conley, Gary Well, but two wind-up merchants. I know his brother Kenny, I know Kenny Well. So, uh, two, two good lads, but a good story. <laughs> Brilliant. Hi, Stephen Aitken, East Coast Bayern Manager. You're listening to Down in Divisions. Right, well, Stevie, we, we, we sort of started with your managerial life there, if you like, but um, we've also mentioned about how you started your playing days at Stoke. Uh, how, how did all that come about back then? You were 16, did you say, when you went down? Yeah, I was at, I was at Kilmarnock, and uh, a guy called George Finlay, uh, who was the... George had been the Ipswich scouts years ago. Do you know, he took he took Ali Brazil and Pat Nevin and all of these lads years and years ago for Scotland. Well, George became the, the kind of Scottish scout. So George had uh, George had took me down at summer and Easter as you did in those days. You know, and you went down and then Stokes City offered me a deal at sixteen, a, a two-year deal, uh, and Kilmarnock had also offered me a two-year a two-year pro. Uh, and Kilmarnock was my hometown club and I, and I spoke with my dad as you did at 15, 16 year old and I took advice from my dad and Jim Fleet was the Kilmarnock manager at the time and I was attempted by my hometown club I always remember something my dad said he said son he says you go down there there's no pressure on you there's no expectation and nobody knows you and you're allowed to go and develop quietly and I always remember that and it was a big it was a big thing Gareth at 16 you know 50, I just turned 16 leaving home and going in, you know, going going south. There's a lot of Scottish boys did then back then in the kind of, you know, the, the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, but a fantastic time. Don't regret. Don't have one regret at all. I had four four great years doing at Stoke City. Made my debut uh, in my first season. I'd made my debut just short in my seventeenth birthday. So it was uh, against Watford. It was a fantastic experience and and one that's it stood me in good stead in terms of football and life in general. You went down there and Alan Ball was the manager who's highly rated as a football player through the 1966 team. How did you find going down there and coaching with these guys and, and getting coached by these guys? See, to be fair, Paul, he was, uh, the biggest thing about Bolly with me is I was actually in charge of his kit. So, uh, for, you know, in those days, football players don't know they're born these days, but the older players and managers will remember this. You had to look after you know, players and the manager. So I was actually given Bolly. So I had Alan Ball's kit. And he remember his flat cap, so his flat cap had to be on had to be on his pile every day. Or, or believe me, you, you were you were running for cover. But in terms of a coach, he wasn't the best coach, but he was a fantastic person. He was a fantastic, you know, he, he had that infectious character that you seen on the TV and seen when he played. And he was like that with his players. It didn't matter what age you were, whether you were 16 or whether you were an experienced player, like. You know, Peter Fox at that time, George Berry and experienced players he had in his dressing room, or while you're a kid like me, he was he had time for everybody. And that's what I liked and always remembered about him. In terms of coaching, he, he stayed fairly away for the for the for the for the training pitch. Didn't he really get involved tactically, allowed his coaches to do that. But a great infectious manager. Pick up something you said earlier and 
one of the differences in a good coach is when somebody told you something and it was something you didn't know and it was different. Would there be anybody in that changing room at the time that, as a as a young aspiring f- football player, tell you something that uh, you you picked up on and, and it's followed you through your life? I think probably that the lad that's went on to have a bit of TV stardom now is a boy Chris Kamara. Do you know Chris Kamara was looks at that time and and Cammy was great with the young kids. Brilliant. He would he would actually sit and spend an afternoon his own after his own time sitting talking to the kids about life and and becoming a footballer. And and he used to he used to say to me that becoming a footballer is no about what you see on the TV and it's no about what you carry in your toilet bag. And it's no about what you wear on your feet, and it's no about the best jacket that you can you can buy. It's about what you do on a Saturday afternoon. Do you know? And I've always remembered that. Always remembered that. And that that came from. He wasn't the best player, but he played in the Premier League. Had a career with Leeds, had a career with Stoke City, uh, and a very very good professional. A very good professional. And, and you know, for people like that, I always listened. I listened to their every word. So that was something I always remembered. At the same time, <clears throat> I remember asking you about, you know, who the, the coach was that had left the, the biggest impression on you. And it wasn't Alan Ball. It wasn't Jimmy Bone who came later at St. Mirren. It was a youth coach at Stoke. Is that right? Yeah, it was a guy called Tony Lacey. Tony Lacey was a youth coach at Stoke. He went on, he, I mean, he was a player. He, was a, he had a good career as a, as a player at Stoke City. And he became youth coach. And then he became youth coach at Wolves as well. Uh, Tony's the best coach I've ever worked with, with bar none. He oh, was exceptional. He was just tactically so astute. Uh, one-to-one coaching, collective coaching, team coaching. It didn't matter what it was. He had. Uh, he was just on the money. Things that I will do and say now in terms of coaching and, and pointers, he said to me, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a fantastic coach, brilliant coach, the best Biggest influence any coach has ever had me was him. And how did um, how did Jimmy Bone compare when you went went up to St Mirren? Jimmy's different again because Jimmy, although Jimmy's, uh, I mean Jimmy is probably my has been my mentor. Uh, I've lifted the phone when times have been difficult, like that experience I had at Stranraer. Jimmy was one of the first calls that I made. Uh, Jimmy's always been there for me, always been there for me. You know, through my time at St Mirren. And since I've left that and, and gone into early management, I've obviously seen Jimmy back and forward at the coaching courses and the, and the CPDs that you go to as, as managers and coaches. And he's always had time for us, always had time. He's lifted the, call, the phone to me on a few occasions, you know, with, after results that we've had both at Dumbarton and and when it, it was during my time at the Shunrah. So he's always been there for me, Jimmy, and, and he's just a good sounding board when I've needed it throughout the years. And, and I'll always respect him for that. You've also at this point, come up the road, Jimmy Bone signed you, you get off to a flyer, you score at Rugby Park, you score against Air at Love Street. Did you find the step up? Because obviously you're probably coming more from reserve football at Stoke into the first team at, at St Mirren. Did you find the step up difficult? I, I, probably, I probably didn't, didn't I, Paul? Because when you're young, I think I think you, you, play, with, you play with... Less of a fear, less of a, a complex. You know, I've always said that you, you, you don't overanalyze. I think when you become older, you, you become, that coach becomes in you. You overanalyze. We all overanalyze as coaches. Do you know what we do? And as a young player, you don't have that. And I, and I came up to St Mirren as 19. 
Jimmy had signed me and he basically threw me straight in and and that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I went in there and as you quite rightly said, you know, I had a great a great opening 10-11 games, scored a few goals, was was playing in the midfield with, with Charlie and Lambert. So I was that was the three years in there. It, it wasn't a bad midfield to play in, to be fair. It, it complemented each other and uh, and I was I was lucky enough. But as I said, listen, I, I, I take me for who I was. I would I wasn't good enough to stay at that level. The guys that I've just mentioned they were good enough to stay at that level and go and kick on again. I wasn't. I wasn't good enough at, at that level. So, but and I certainly enjoyed my time, and I, I can't thank Jimmy enough for giving me that opportunity. There's players in that team, guys like Ricky Gillis, Barry Levetti. You touched on Paul Lambert, John Hewitt, Kenny McDowell, Chick Charlie himself. Did that team underachieve? There's some real quality in there. We finished third that year, Paul. We finished third to, I think, if, if memory serves me, Kilmarnock won it and Dunfermline in the championship. The Dunfermline yeah. finished, we finished third. Chick, get, Chick, if I remember rightly, Chick got sacked that year because it was a spitting incident at Somerset Park uh, between Chick and David Kennedy. So I think Chick got sacked. And I think that cost us that year. I think that cost us. I think if Chick had remained at the club, we would have we finished in the top two that year. Few years prior to that, I started following Motherwell and going to Fir Park every week. And obviously, we were lucky enough to get Paul Lambert. First question I'm going to ask you is: Paul Lambert, at that point, did you ever think he would ever go and achieve what he did? And the second question, I don't know if you would have been at Saint Man at the time, but part of the deal was I think Jim Gardner went the other way. And Jim Gardner, I don't know if you played with Jim, but I used to watch Motherwell every week and watch Jim Gardner play on the left wing. I thought he was a fantastic player. But then he just his career seemed to go downhill. He never really kicked off. He went to St. Martin. Do you remember much about him? So there's two questions, the Paul Lambert one and uh, Jim Gardner. I'll tell you the Paul Lambert one first. Actually, Paul was just slightly older than me. So myself, Paul and Norrie McWhorter, the three of us didn't drink. So the three of us actually pallied together. I, I remember we went to some boxing together and different things like that and a few nights together. We, we, were, we, were, we kind of teamed up a wee bit at that age time. If it came to attitude, application and wanting it, I had every confidence that Paul Lambert would be a top player because they three things he had in abundance. The thing that developed Paul was the move that he got to Germany because Paul needed to understand, in my opinion, the other side of the game, that defensive side of the game because offensively he could see a pass, he could play, he was clever, he could go and link a one-two but when he came back, as I said, in that year, he just developed into something completely different. And it made me, it made, I was no surprise one bit that he would only be a top player. Did I ever think he'd be a European Cup winner? Probably not. But I'm absolutely delighted that he did because great lad. And, you know, in terms of his attitude, in terms of his application, in terms of his want to get there, then absolutely deserved it to have accolades like that. And he deserves everything he got. Jim Gardner, I did play with Jim. Jim did come in the opposite direction. I would probably say about Jim, and I think Jim would probably admit this. Jim was quite a, a quiet lad, and an unassuming lad. He was, he was, he, you know, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a loud lad. He wasn't, a, and he came into a dressing room that probably had one or two big characters at, 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 at that time. And 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 you know, even the young boys, your 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 Martin Bakers and your Barry Lavettis and that, they, they weren't the shine coming forward. And I just think Jim probably was a wee bit quiet and probably didn't express himself the way he could because he, he was a player, Paul. He was a player. He had a left foot that was a wand. 
but he probably just didn't express his ability was there, but he just didn't find a way to express himself at the club, and and that's probably why he found it a, a difficult time at Sydney. You mentioned uh, Chick Charnley. We can't have you on the show here and and not at least ask you for some uh, anecdotes about what it was like to share a dressing room with him. Mental. <laughs> what, pe- what people don't understand about Chick, one of the best trainers you'll ever get in all the years I've played football, Chick was an unbelievable trainer. He was he was fantastic. If you did pre-season runs, Chick was up there. He'd be, he'd be right. first to run. And a lot of people don't think that Chick because he had the lifestyle that, that he had, but his application to the game was was again second to none. But in terms of the dressing room, he loved he loved that. He loved to put a smile on people's face. You know, you would you would have the silly sprints on a Saturday. I remember he, we had the silly sprints in uh in a in a Friday before the game, and the first team squad would be doing the silly sprints, and Jimmy would be you know, so there was a loser to that. And so so Chick would always wind up the loser. Jack loved the song, and, he, and he's a Celtic man. Whoever lost, he would be trying to ensure that the person that lost was a Celtic man, and when the open sung a Celtic song, if you know what. I mean. <laughs> so that was every Friday, he ensured that somebody was stood up in the, the dressing room, kind of lockers, and they were belting out one of Jack's Celtic songs, and Jack liked to sing along with them and get the play. <laughs> oh, that was Jack. Can you tell us about uh, Mark Doherty's uh, summer sandals? Uh, Remember you saying that uh, there was something wrong with his with his footwear. Sparky's a great lad, great lad. Uh, do you know worked with him at Sonard and Barton, and uh, great lad. And I, I can't. I'm on the phone to him regular, and do you know constantly in, in terms of his his social media. But he's probably the worst dress sense I've ever seen in my life. It's perplexing what he wears, and he's got a pair of sandals that he just walks into training. The one thing about Mark Doherty, he does not give a toss. <laughs> what Andy says about him he's just he just brushes it off and he just doesn't care and he'll walk in with whatever suits Mark Dockery and that's what I love about the lad do you know but that, these pair of sandals seriously they're like something that Gandhi would have wore their high <laughs> before asking you about uh, before asking you about the sandals I, I should have probably said said to you you know we're talking about St Mirren in terms of your playing career there how, I know we've talked about you going in and, and Going into the, the the PE teaching and stuff like that, but talk to us a bit about the if you like the end of your playing days and and the realization that maybe you weren't gonna you weren't gonna get where you hoped to get as a 16 year old going down to Stoke. I think probably after my second season at some month, Jimmy changed it slightly uh, because Paul had left and went to Motherwell and uh, and and Chick had had moved on for for the reasons that I'd, I'd given earlier. So he brought in a different style. He brought Jamie Fuller in. Jamie was a very, very good midfield player and would only have a good career, but he was different for Chicken. He was different, very different for Chicken Paul. He was more combative and he liked to get about people, you know, and go and put his foot in. And he brought the boy Paul McIntyre in as well. Barry McLaughlin, you know, big, strong, energetic lads who liked to go and be physical. And I probably didn't fit into that. I was more in terms of checking Paul and wanting to play and let it, get it done and, 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 and pop it and pass it. And uh, so Jimmy went in a different way, and that, that's fine. I didn't have any issue with that, and I've never held a grudge against Jimmy with that because every manager has the right to do that, regardless of what season or time to, time to time. So I just knew that my time was up, and uh, and Strenard came in for me, and 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 I went to Strenard at that time as at part time. So that was me going for part time, and then I'd moved on to Stennis Muir, and you know, and and I just I just knew that 
at part-time level. I needed to find a club. It wasn't about earning a million pound at that point. I was about finding somewhere that suited me and I could go and enjoy and play my football. And, and eventually I went to Cowan and Rangers and, do you know, the rest is history because, I, do you know, regardless of what level that was at compared, compared to what I'd, I'd, I'd been at, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I had a fantastic time. And it sounded like that that might have been where you met Chris Strain and, and then, as a result, put him through that uh, pre-season pummeling that we spoke to him about last week. I listened to Chris's interview. I did. I <laughs> He's, listen, Chris is a good lad. He's, he's, he's a good... I mean, Chris is... The one thing I, I, I picked up for Chris's interview was him talking about him, him self-reflecting and mellowing. And uh, and he had to do that. There's no doubt about that because he was absolutely nuts in terms of as a football player. He was he was passionate, to say the least. And he took that into management. But I just hope he doesn't lose that side of himself because that's a big part of who he is and uh, and, and why people like him and rate him. And uh, and he's got an infection, infectious character around about football. So, but certainly in terms of our holiday together, I don't think John Chris will be in many more holidays with me. I think I'm, I think I'm too full on for Chris in terms of getting out there onto the sand dunes. Where, where Chris is getting to the age where he, he wants to have a sangria too. And I mean, we, we we've talked about uh, what's happened with Stranraer during lockdown and, and the relegation and stuff. But surely the biggest, the toughest time you've had in the last few months must have been East Enders stopping? Horrendous. It's been horrific. I think everybody knows me in football knows that that's my guilty pleasure and I just can't believe it, Gareth. I mean, I'm coming in on a Tuesday and Thursday night with nothing to do. I don't know what <laughs> I've got to watch for up on the telly now. Do you know, East Enders, isn't it? East Enders have been taken off for screens. But I've been watching the reruns. I watched Max and Stacey's rerun the other day after Christmas 2009. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a proper fan, isn't it? Doc Cotton's still on it. <laughs> but have you always been into it or what got you into it or did you did you I don't know people watch it when you were growing up I think because I'm comfy on thank the the famous scheme I think it reminds me of that do you know I just think <laughs> I think it just puts me back home so uh, I can relate to it because me days are a happy day every day is a struggle and do you know so that's what uh, EastEnders reminds me of and, and did you watch it sort of back in the, I don't know, the Pauline Fowler days, Arthur, Arthur Fowler before then? Listen, I would win, I, I would win Mastermind in EastEnders. Really? Oh, I would win Mastermind. There's not much I'll know, no. There's not many characters I'll forget. Can't even think. I don't watch it. I can't even come up with anything. What's your favourite, uh, if I was to ask you what your favourite uh, storyline from it was? Oh, I'd probably say it's today with the Mitchell brothers, isn't it? It's today with the Mitchell, Phil getting shot. I mean, that, now we're talking, we're talking heavy gangster stuff now. And, and <laughs> See, I thought I thought it would have been Dirty Den returning or Dirty Den getting killed. Or uh, Dirty Den was better when he was the original. That returning, that's too far fetched. Uh, Stephen Swift, BSC Glasgow, and I listened to Down the Divisions. Brilliant. Well, before we finish up, we'll clear up the uh, down the divisions decider. I'll give you those clues again. We're looking for the year when Renfrew won the one and only Scottish Junior Cup. Sven Jorn Eriksson took over as England manager. Foot and mouth disease started in the UK, and Manchester United paid a British record transfer fee of nineteen million pounds to sign Ruud van Nistelrooy. Stevie, you said two thousand and two. Two. And Paul, you were. I can't. Did I say three or four? Oh, I think you said 2004. Ah, you're saying that because you thought 2003 would be the right answer. It was 2001. Oh, well. Hit the bar, That's that. Hit the bar. 
Stevie, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate you being on the on the show, and we obviously wish you all the best for Stranraer's season when it starts, and hopefully you, you get a little bit a little bit more luck than you have, than you have uh, this summer, and that um, we see you up there challenging for the League Two title as you as you're hoping, and, and you're back in League One this time next year. No, I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate it. Paul, all the best to you, mate. I hope you have a good season, mate. Likewise for yourself. And listen, I'm I'm sure you guys will be bouncing back straight away. Definitely. I appreciate that. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show with comments or suggestions for people to speak to. Our email address is downthedivisions at gmail.com. That's downthedivisions at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Do leave a comment, which helps others find us, and subscribe to get alerts when our latest episode is released. We'll be back next Friday on Down the Divisions. Down the Divisions.